Welcome to Dog People, a podcast about the Japanese punk bands Going Steady and Ginnam Boys. I'm Bob Yelma. I'm here with my co-hosts Adam and Mike. What's going on? Konnichiwa. What's up? I'm going to have to overdub that later for people who don't <laughs> understand Japanese. We'll, we'll add subtitles to the podcast. Um, <laughs> However that works. <laughs> it's, a, it's a SoundCloud comment that pops up right there. <laughs> So, so today, um, I have kind of an amorphous topic um, that I, I couldn't quite crystallize in my head. I, I think you guys will be able to help me kind of make some sense of it. But I, I'm kind of wanting to talk about the, the general idea of Going Steady and Ginnam Boys as people who made Seishun punk music. And uh, I chose to call it Seishun punk, not just to be like a complete weeb, but I feel like it kind of covers a little more than just like the word teenager or the word youth does. I think it's a little more uh, vague in a way. Like it's, it's like your golden years, but it's kind of the opposite. It's like your, your blue, your green years, your young green years. And uh, mm. looking back on my own life, I can kind of feel like, you know, up until like 23, I still kind of felt like a teenager. So I, I feel like it kind of works in the, in the sense of them being older, but still writing songs that could appeal to a, a more teenage mindset, a Seishun mindset. So I just kind of wanted to start at the beginning and first ask you guys, you know, when you guys first started listening to punk, uh, what were the bands that you were into? And did they kind of appeal to you as teenagers specifically? Yeah, well, for me, I just thought about this the other day because um, I put Operation Ivy on a, when I was driving in the car with with my own kids, uh, who, are, who, you know, one of them is a teenager and one of them is very soon to be a teenager. And I remember that being one of the first punk bands that I ever discovered. So I was living in the Midwest at the time. You know, I was living in Iowa. There wasn't really anybody. There wasn't the punk scene at all where I was. And there wasn't really people even aware of it for the most part. But this was like when Napster had just dropped and I could download things. Oh, okay. Right. And so there was a kid. There was one kid at my school out on Operation Ivy t-shirt and I remembered thinking that that kid was cool and that I liked them you know I talked to him about music once in a while so I just downloaded a few songs off of Napster because there wasn't anywhere to buy the CD where I was living and what appealed to me was you could tell that they were young kids from their voices you could tell that they were teenagers you know yeah and that is one thing that just really appealed to me because I was like these kids are I mean obviously they're older than us but um you know, like when they're making it, I'm like, this is how old I am right now. And so that appealed to me for sure. And I remember um, in a very similar vein, listening to the song Territorial Pissings by Nirvana, which I was really into as a teenager. Oh, yeah. The way his voice cracks at the end. His voice cracks. Yeah. And I thought <laughs> it sounded like, yeah, it really sounds like a like a teenager. And it made it so honest and immediate for me in that moment. Right. So that's something that definitely like without looking at the lyrical content and stuff like that, just knowing that they're your age and kind of going through the things that you're going through and like expressing those feelings was a huge thing for me, for sure. How about you, Mike? I have no idea. Yeah, I'm not really sure how I feel to, about it, to be honest. I Like, the first ones that I got into, the very first one, for sure, was, was Green Day. Like, Dookie, 
no question was like the first punk music I really like consumed and and like uh, listened to a lot. But at the time, I don't think I had any sort of um, even guess at how old they were. I it was like I was really young. I was probably I don't know, like ten or something. Um, I was in elementary school for sure when that album came out, um, and uh, I feel like I didn't really have that a concept of it quite yet. I was just like, this music sounds amazing, <laughs> you know, kind of. Um, I I don't know, but I I see what you're saying for sure. I just I don't know if I had the same relationship exactly with it. Yeah, you know what? I I I asked that question, but I didn't quite have that same experience myself because I feel like my gateway to music was kind of a weirder music or like sillier music so you know the stuff i was really into as a kid was beck and the aquabats Mm. kind of stuff that appealed to me just being a goofball and uh honestly it was kind of a right around the time i discovered going steady that i kind of discovered the stuff that really actually appealed to me even though i still like that other stuff this is kind of the stuff that spoke to me more as like a little bit of a freak being a little bit of a weirdo and um i think going steady in their music, not in their early music, but in, later on, they're able to articulate that feeling. And in particular, at the beginning of Wakamono Tachi, he talks about how when he discovered punk rock, you know, the earth split in two and his dick got ripped off. And yeah. it's kind of um, put in a way that is as about articulate as a teenager could be. To, you know, like this is, <laughs> it changed my life in 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 an insane way. Just for the nerds out there, I think actually his dick got uh, nuclear burns. <laughs> oh, like, got, like the steamed. atom bomb and the H bomb and yeah. stuff. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think <laughs> I could never quite figure out what that word meant—the kakimushita. But uh... well, I think mushi is steamed and like, yeah. So I think it like got well, anyway. Not like, important. Radi- <laughs> he got like radiation, radiation burns from it. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I've never looked up the the actual lyrics, but that's how I always interpret it. <laughs> Either way, you, you get my point where it's kind of just like, it like blew his mind. Hey guys, Adam here. I'd like to issue a formal correction. I mistakenly thought he said mushita, meaning to steam something. But actually the lyrics are kakimushita, meaning to scratch at something. However, it still holds that he got nuclear burns on his dick. Thanks guys. And, you know, he talks about in some of the, the Ginnam Boy songs early on, he, he uh, talks about sitting in his room in, in the song Trash. You know, he's just like sitting in his room and listening to Weezer and, and Green Day and, and the Buzzcocks. And uh, there's another song in um, the Dote Folk Shonen Koenjinite Bakushi Sunzen. You know, he talks about how his mom is crying in the next room and, because his, his dad ran away with another woman. And he's just like, I'm just in my room listening to punk rock. And it kind of paints this picture of just being a weird kid, finding refuge in your bubble, in your music. Yeah. And so even though I don't think they were able to quite express those feelings until later on as a band, I, I like that that's, even if it's not also, even if it's not completely autobiographical, I like picturing that as 
the origin story for Mineta's songwriting in Going Steady and the Ginnam Boys. So I was kind of trying to figure out, you know, what is it about their songs then that capture this so well? Because I feel like in like the boys and girls era, the, the music is a lot more rose-colored, rose-tinted. It's kind of sentimental in a way. Like in Don't Trust Over 30, it's uh, singing about how, you know, let's live our lives in a way that makes us smile. Or in Forever Young, which is a song in English, he, he says, and I do believe so, our dreams really come true. And so it's all these really happy, optimistic sentiments. And there's a song specifically titled Youth in English, um, where the, the Japanese lyrics are something like reach out with both hands and grasp, grasp the happiness. And also youth doesn't happen twice, so hold on to it. <laughs> kind of talking about these youthful ideas but to a certain extent to me it kind of seems a little half-baked like kind of like those mill and Colin songs where he's like i'm 22 and i don't know what to do and you're like all right you're 22 like life goes on dog like you'll be okay <laughs> damn mill and Colin called out mill and called out <laughs> yeah like mill and Colin was one of my favorite bands when i was 17 so it's one of those things where i kind of feel like i didn't have the experience of like my first love necessarily being <laughs> something that would stand the test of time <laughs> about what you're talking about now that that's something that i think so when i was a teenager i remember being really um i didn't have that kind of optimistic like um hopeful kind of view of the world at all like going steady has in their lyrics i was more drawn to some of the like angry aggressive kind of stuff in, in punk music. That was the thing that, that really appealed to me personally because I just felt really angry and, and upset all the time. Just probably a, a hormonal kind of thing, I guess, or I'm not sure. <laughs> but I, I really remember like as a teenager, especially as a young teenager, like walking around like a ticking time bomb, like always feeling really angry. And, and um, But I wasn't an aggressive person at all. And so I, you know, I never got in fights or anything like that. I wasn't trying to cause trouble. I would just come home and, and have this... I don't know. I, I would I would take it out by listening to music and stuff. That's how I kind of deal with it. Um, and I wasn't listening to Going Steady until I was probably you know twenty years old or more. And I had kind of crossed over into that point where I was more optimistic about things and more hopeful about stuff. And so that that's something that I really notice about their band and and also the lyrics of this Seishun Punk in general. That whole movement is that it is pretty it's pretty positive and life affirming. Whereas when you listen to most punk rock from the United States, and especially from the UK, it's much more dark and kind of bleak. Cynical. Lyrically. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I was going to say, Bob, yeah, you're talking about like having the, like an uh, attachment to the music because it's like other teenagers made it um, earlier. You know, like I didn't really have that much of like a positive feeling about being a teenager when I was a teenager. I, I also felt really like um, often like totally involved in like this internal dilemma a lot of the time. And like, it wasn't really like particularly like 
naturally happy time for me. But I found that um, music like this, like, helped me to access like that that kind of thinking in a way, or like um, helped me to um, at least embrace it a little bit. You know, I, I'm glad that I did get uh, this record and and um, Sakuranuta like uh, towards the end of my teenage years because I think um, it did kind of infuse me with a little bit of like at at the end of those years, um, kind of. Um, Getting to getting to see them in a little bit of a positive light as they went out, kind of. I, I love what you guys are bringing up because I feel like it's going to apply in about five minutes. But, you know, jumping from boys and girls onward to Sakura no Uta, to that era of their songwriting, it's still kind of like uh, anthemic in a way. And I think this is the time when they really started to get bunched in with those other Seishun punk bands like uh, Gaga Ga Special and... Uh, like Sambo Master and stuff like that, where those bands are very uh, romantic and sentimental in their in their lyrics and in their melodies and stuff. And so I, during this era, during Sakura no Uta, you know, Going Steady, still singing stuff like the first song on that record, Ahondara Koshin Kyoku there, you know, singing, I don't want to die yet, even if I don't know what the future holds. I can start to see the beginning of that, that doubt or of that um, kind of uncertainty starting to creep in. Mm. kind of more acknowledging like this youth hasn't been so so rosy for me you know in Tokyo Shonen there's a lyric where it's uh we're young our hearts are warped and perverted but we're shouting we're here you know if you close your eyes and you listen to the voices of the boys with their fists clench you know that's what they're saying but they're acknowledging like we're we're kind of weird Even in the end, uh, the record closer, Hoshini Negai, well, he's, the lyrics are kind of like, with red scars and a deep love, somehow we'll light our way to the future. This kind of goes back to what Adam mentioned in the first episode, the, the desperate optimism. I feel like there's still that optimism, but it's kind of like the cracks are starting to show. There's like a little bit of uncertainty. And so I think it's after this record, during the, the later Going Steady singles, when when kind of the the ugliness and the neurotic side of Mineta's songwriting really starts to creep in. Uh, I think Dote So Young was the first single after, uh, oh, well, maybe Kakenukete Seishun might have been the first one, but Dote So Young, when that one comes out, you know, it's straight on. It's not romantic anymore. He's talking about, like, I masturbated thinking about desecrating this girl and my dream is now in a crumpled up tissue. And he sings about, like, you know, even if we look like idiots sweating and drooling, we're going to sing this song and let our voices carry to the heaven. Like he's kind of making a statement like I was a weird kid and this is, he's not going to sugarcoat it. And I think going from this point into the early Ginan boys songs, he's, you know, really cementing himself as someone who's delving into territory that most people would be too scared to get into. <laughs> You 
you guys were both talking about how, you know, you had these feelings of not feeling comfortable in your own skin or just having this anger that you didn't know how to channel. And I think this is the point where he's really honing in on this in his songs. And, you know, in, in School Kill, the narrator's talking about, you know, his obsession with a girl and how he, you know, follows her home from school. And he hears her speak and he's it's like Winona Ryder or he's like staring at her butt in gym class. And when he sees, you know, her talking with other boys, he, he just has this anger and he doesn't know how to channel it. And he runs away to go steal a CD and just kind of like, I feel like there's a lot of songs where he's fixating on other people kind of in an unhealthy way. In that, uh, in that, you know, he's singing about how he wants to protect this girl. He wants to kill her dad and protect her, but it's kind of more like, I want to kill your dad so you don't move away and I can keep you within my grasp. And it, mm. I think he starts addressing these ugly teenage thoughts in a way that, um, I don't know if it's celebratory, but I just love that someone's able to so vividly put you into that, into that mindset which is a really uncomfortable mindset to be in. And I was trying to go down the list of like, who else, who else has songs like this? And I think a lot of them are in Mineta's bloodline. I would say like Weezer for one, you know, the song across the sea is mm-hmm. kind of a, a hard song to, to take, you know, where he's talking about sniffing and licking this girl's envelope and touching himself while he thinks about her. Yeah. Um, I think green day, you mentioned green day, Mike. Yeah. As big of a band as Green Day was, you know, their first big hit Longview is about about masturbating and how he's just bored and his mom tells him to get a job. But he's like, you hate your job, mom. Like, it's kind of that that cynical youth mentality where you like you feel like you've cracked the code of like the whole world's bullshit. But then to a certain extent, like you're no better than it. I'd love to hear what you guys think about all of this. I'm having trouble kind of turning it into something more cohesive right now. No, I'm with you. And I think that you're right to make this kind of um, distinction out of um, going steady and specifically like the end of like uh, Sakura no Uta and, and some of the singles uh, and then into this. Like, I forget which song you were you mentioned, but um, the idea of like, we're here and we're, we're fucked up, but we're here, you know, um, as far as like the teenager yeah Tokyo Shonen Tokyo Shonen that was the one yeah exactly and this also brought me back to something that you said in the first episode Adam but you talked about um how uh even before you really understood the lyrics like uh, some of the music really um you felt like when you understood the lyrics eventually it was like oh yeah of course this is what what he was singing it always Mm -hmm. felt like this is what he was singing and that's kind of how I felt about songs like Tokyo Shonen in particular, when you talk about that being all chorus, that song pretty much is just like an onslaught of choruses kind of like, um, yeah. but you know, listening to those, those songs, like, like I said, kind of at the end of my teenage years, I think really gave me like a, a necessary shot of like self-acceptance a little bit. Um, and, uh, I don't think I had quite realized that that was something that uh, he was actually kind of putting in the lyrics. I think like, I didn't hear a lot of people quite singing that exactly in English that often when I was a teenager. It was more kind of like talking about the problems and talking about uh, the issues and, and not so much like, um, yeah, I'm fucked up, but, you know, I'm, I am who I am and I'm here, you know. Um, and I think that, that uh, 
that kind of message and in the end of the in uh, going steady is really great really awesome and, and really like uh yeah. feels present in the music and then um i think you're right he kind of then in ginen boys kind of takes that premise and kind of goes into it in a little finer detail like it's like how am i fucked up you know, and then here's a song where I'm fucked up this way. Here's a song where I'm fucked up this way, you know, and it's kind of going into it a little more in specific in in like uh, the painful detail a little bit. Yeah, I would say there's two things that I kind of thought of when you were saying all of this. The first is that I remember feeling when I did first hear this music that it was something that I felt like something that I had been waiting for my whole life, like you know, you were describing that feeling of of having this kind of inner turmoil and not knowing how to deal with these feelings and stuff. And so, you know, I naturally kind of lean towards that aggressive side and stuff as a way of taking out my anger. But I feel like I was always kind of waiting for something like this that was kind of passionately getting out this feeling of like, yeah, everything sucks, but I'm going to push through this like as a defiance. Like I'm going to, you know, there's a defiant, I think I described it before like that, like a defiantly optimistic kind of view in those early songs. And that's something that I, I definitely, when I heard it and when I finally understood those lyrics, I thought, yes, this is the kind of music that I've been, this is that kind of feeling that I've been trying to, you know, put my finger on for 10 years or whatever and, and couldn't do. But I think the other thing, when you're talking about how, you know, being really open about all of these things, like essentially I think what you're saying is taking that whole idea of the teenage mind and warts and all and and saying like those feelings that you have are feelings that we all feel and that yeah as weird as you feel about them there are things that are very you know natural and human to feel um and so that that is kind of probably you know what you're talking about mike where you feel like validated or that you can accept yourself and love yourself when you when you hear those things um I didn't ever personally feel like I wanted to control a girl and like, you know, steal her bloomers from gym class and stuff like that, like like Minette is talking about. <laughs> that kind of stuff never like that so so there's parts of it that obviously I don't feel like, but just the idea that it's okay to be a weirdo, um, it's okay to feel anger and even gross feelings. It's okay to you know, and I, I think like with bands like Weezer and and uh, Green Day, like you're talking about, it's sort of veiled slightly, right? So like when he says, bite my lip and close my eyes and take me to paradise, like once I was an older, a bit older, I thought, oh yeah, he's talking about masturbating. But I didn't think that when I first heard it on the radio. And the same thing goes for like Weezer songs. When you heard like, you know, um, like their big hit. Um, Buddy Holly? No, no, no. Uh, Sweater song? No. <laughs> um, Beverly Hills. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the one. That is where he wants to be. Um, no, that. Uh, so the world has turned and left me here. <laughs> Are we just gonna go all the way down the list? Here? Let's go down the list. <laughs> yeah. No, the one where you know where he's pork and beans. Say it ain't so. Say it ain't so. Okay. So say it ain't so is is also supposedly about masturbating, right? He's talking about you know this bottle building up pressure and exploding and stuff like that. And um, and that, that's also a song where he talks about like family trouble and all that kind of stuff as well. So those songs are like very, you know, they might be about these teenage experiences, but they're sort of 
masked in a way that they can be more consumable. And I think that Mineta's very, there's no two ways to take his lyrics. Like when he talks about those things, like I stole your, you know, bloomers and don't call me a stalker. Like it's not, it's not poetic or metaphorical or anything. It's like, <laughs> he's just saying very directly what he did. So, Yeah, I got to say, none of, none of the particulars of the uh, Mineta <laughs> perversity is particularly what I was talking about, but uh, more just the feeling of like the uh, the going steady, like uh, <laughs> self-acceptance. Not so much that I felt uh, empowered by <laughs> like, like that, for example. <laughs> One song that stuck out to me was the first one on door, the Junanasai, Cutie Girls Don't Love Me in Punk. And it's um it's built into the title of the song that like I'm a punk and I'm an outsider. Like the cutie girls don't love me because I'm a weirdo, I'm a punk. And in the lyrics of the song, he talks about how there's guys who've had sex over 30 times easily, but that shit doesn't matter because they didn't read Gumi Chocoreto Pine when they were teenagers, like like the the singer did. And it's like that, he's, he, he scored the cool guy points because of that. And later on in the song too, he's like, you know, some people can tell someone else, I love you a hundred times, but that doesn't matter because I obsessively wrote a girl's name over 50 pages of my college notebook. And I think the song that really um, encapsulates this all the best for me is Trash, where he talks about, you know, being confined in his room, listening to all his music. It's not just punk rock. He, he talks, you know, some Japanese bands, uh, Jagatara, there's a, a J-pop singer, Mori Takachisato, who will come back in a little bit. We'll mention her again later. And he's, you know, thinking about doing disgusting things to girls, listening to this music in his room. And he, he sings about how, you know, he hopes he can find someone for himself out there in the world, but he also wants to cut up all the happy couples with the chainsaw. And then when the, when, the, uh, when the chorus comes back for a second time, it's not no longer, I hope there's someone out there for me. It's like, I hope I can get myself fellated. I hope I can get my dick sucked. And he's, he's expressing these really sophomoric, really uh, blunt ideas in a way where I, I feel like um, in the current, <laughs> in the current like, uh, discourse, I think it's really hard to express these ugly ideas. And I think for the most part, Mineta is pretty successful at just like, peeking into this without celebrating it necessarily. There's only one song. I'll bring up the one song that I think is maybe doesn't pull it off. There's the, the one Guinan boy song, Mesubuta. I was going to bring that up too. I was going to say that I think that's one that is, uh, it's hard to overlook. You kind of have to uh, address it. And it's really like, what do you do with it exactly? Because it almost, it's like, it's like an incel anthem practically. You know, it's like um, just super, like, I, I assume, you know, it's a character, an inhabited character. Um, but it's really just um, like the expression of hatred towards all women. Kind of, and and it it seems to be like uh, from the perspective of like a young person who's feeling that at the time, you know. But um, but yeah, what do you what do you do with that song exactly? What what do you make of it? 
Yeah, that's what I wanted to ask you guys both about is that, I mean, Bob, you expressed exactly what I was thinking while you're talking about this is, I, I want to, I really want to hear your opinions about that because it's something I feel conflicted about is like, these are real things, even if they're just like intrusive thoughts or whatever, like there are, these are things that probably cross the minds of like even the most, I don't know, like, um, like the most big hearted people still have terrible thoughts, I'm sure. Exactly, exactly. And and so do we just sweep these under the rug and say that these things don't exist? Or is there a way to express them artistically? You know, and I guess, you know, it, it almost feels dishonest if you express them objectively. Like you almost have to look at them as like from the subject, right? So that you, to give them an honesty. And if you look at them objectively and just say like, here are these thoughts that everybody thinks, then it, it just becomes academic and it doesn't, it's cold. It doesn't, it doesn't have any of the feeling anymore. But if you do it subjectively, like you're talking about, then you get those songs like Mesabuta where it, yeah, like you're saying, it really does. It's like a Bukowski kind of thing, right? You'll get these guys who will start worshiping that as this like, yeah, see, he said it, he put that word to all, you know, and you have that risk of like the fans, um, I don't know, kind of running off with that as like a vindication of all of their frustrations and stuff, you know? So the one song I could think of that's kind of an, kind of analogous to that one is uh, the minor threat song, guilty of being white mm. written by a young person. And he, he, he's talking about being beat up in high school. Cause he was one of the only white kids. And so it's, it's not necessarily coming from the most terrible place, but it's, it's certainly doesn't sit well in the larger context of the world where like, He's he's a man with white privilege in a very white privileged world. And so I think it's one of those things, though, when you look at Fugazi in general, like great. It's, they seem like great dudes, a really principled band, uh, seem like big hearted dudes to me. So I kind of feel like not to forgive necessarily uh, missteps, but I feel like you can with in the same in the, in the case of Mesubuta, I feel like you can you can say, you know, they <laughs> they can't be all winners and. <laughs> It's kind of amazing to me that that Mineta has pulled it off as much as he has with only one real terrible song. I think what makes those things different, like the Minor Threat song and also Mineta's songs, what makes it different is that they're approaching it from a point of humility and from a point of accepting that, look, maybe I'm just really fucked up here and that maybe this is, you know, it's not coming from a point where they're correct and where they're, they're it's not moral teaching. And I think that makes a big difference um, for how I take it personally. And I, I don't know, because I'm not one of these, you know, groups, I'm in the power position, right? So for me, it's easy to say, okay, yeah, fine. Yeah. I don't know, because if, if I were a, you know, a woman or a person of color or something like that, it might be a very different thing. But it's definitely one of those things, like you couldn't argue with a woman if they were like, this song grosses me out. I don't like them. would be like, you know, fair enough. Like, I'd have to give that to someone. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And my hunch is that you're right, Adam, about this, this song in particular, like my hunch on it is that it's saying more about the narrator of the song than it is actually about the views he is expressing. You know, I, I, my hunch is that that is especially taken in the context of Chin's um, comment that, um, uh, kind of everything with Mineta is a little bit of an act. Like it, it feels like this is, um, also about, inhabiting a 
feeling, which personally I'm not so sure that is something that everybody feels at some point in their life. <laughs> you know, I think, um, mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, there, there's a lot of frustrations people can feel. Um, it's a, it's a strange one. This, this one, cause it, it is so, uh, kind of like misogynistic sounding, but I think it really is like, uh, trying to be a comment on the person who holds those misogynistic feelings. Um, is my hunch, but I, I'm not sure, you know, I, it, it is just kind of this, like you're saying, Bob, I think like I could easily see people just hearing the song and being like, I don't like this song for, for, because of the content, you know, and, mm-hmm. um, uh, being totally valid. Yeah. Before going on, I did want to ask also, I, uh, I recently listened to this really good podcast. Um, this LA based comedian, Jamie Loftus did a podcast all about Lolita and so she talks about Lolita's written from the perspective of that guy, uh, Humbert, Humbert. Yeah. Yep. And that kind of comes to mind as well, where it's a story told from a very despicable person's viewpoint, but the story itself isn't necessarily despicable in, 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 in what it's trying to get across. Like, I think it's very clearly uh, anti-pedophilia. Uh, and I'm wondering if you guys can think of any other stuff that kind of dips its toes in some really gnarly waters for, for a better purpose. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, you know, the thing that comes to my mind there, I was reading something recently about that, about, uh, Nobokov and, and how, if I, I don't remember the details, so I apologize for that, but it was something about the fact that, you know, immediately when somebody reads something like that, they think that it's autobiographical, at least in some respect. And so like, you know, they start thinking that he's a pedophile or something like that, if he's going to write a story about that, but he is Throughout that story, Humbert Humbert is like, like, you know, really debased himself and like gets more and more despicable as the thing goes on. But I guess the thing that I was thinking of would be like, was it Harmony Corinne who did Bully? Yeah, I think, I think, I think so. so. Films like Bully or Kids, those were like showing the worst parts of people and kind of like social dysfunction and stuff like that. And he doesn't ever pull back and say like, I don't know. Here's the moral of the story. It just shows people doing really awful things like drowning cats and having sex with uh, mentally mentally challenged people and stuff like that. You know, like just really awful, awful kind of stuff. And so there, I guess maybe there's something to be said about just pulling the veil back and showing the ugly side of humanity. You know, some of the th- kinds of things that you're asking about, Bob, I think there are some Japanese examples for sure. I think right away of... Um Oshima's in the realm of the senses. Are you guys aware of that movie? No, I only heard the title. It's a movie with a, uh, about one of the former emperors of Japan, um, and a really torrid love affair or maybe a Lord or something. It's been a while since I've seen it, but, um, it's based on a true story, but there's a lot of unsimulated sex in the movie. Um, and, uh, it goes to some, uh, very extreme places. And uh, I I think of that as probably informing a little bit uh, some of the Guinan boys' work, um, some of uh, kind of cinema like that. I feel like uh, Minet is a pretty um, voracious consumer of of media. It seems like, and um, I I'd find it hard to believe that he hasn't um, taken in uh, a, a number of films like that uh, for sure. Um, but yeah, that's a, that's a pretty wild one <laughs> that if you guys haven't seen um, is uh, is an experience for sure. <laughs> I don't want to say how it uh, uh, too much about it, but I think some of my listeners, some of our listeners, um, 
may have seen it and uh, they know what I'm talking about, probably. Don't be coy. We know you have some super fans listening to this show. We got the Huguenot fans out there. You know what I'm talking about, my listeners out there. <laughs> <laughs> Well, so, you know, I, I, I've been talking a lot about how in these first two Ginan Boys albums, how the songs really do a good job inhabiting this mindset, kind of looking at looking back on it. And I feel like on these same albums, they also kind of say goodbye to to youth. You know, uh, Seishun Jidai, for one, I think is a really good song where it's the song title is, you know, the time of our youth. Um, and he's talking about, you know, what happened to these people from my high school? What happened to that cute girl? What happened to that soccer star? And and a lot of the song is kind of about how, you know, you know, one day we're all gonna die and become stardust, but for now I just want to be here smiling and I'm happy that I'm happy that we we had the chance to meet. Or like the other song that I think really captures this feeling well is the the final song on on door, the Nantonaku Bokutachi wa Otonani Narunda. It's another song kind of looking back on like, you know, I met back I met up with an old friend who I hadn't seen in a long time. And, you know, I couldn't remember that song that we sang together, but the memories still remain of good times. There's the one lyric where he's like, wouldn't it be nice if something good happened tomorrow? And like, you know, no matter how much time passes, I still want to feel that, that doki doki. Mm -hmm. This is a word I was having trouble translating kind of like, like Seishun. Like, I still want to feel that, like that pitter patter, that fluttering in my heart. Yeah. These are the songs I feel take the path of, I'm gonna say goodbye to my youth. Not so bad. The other, the other path. This is this is my weird dark horse candidate for the other path in the choose your own adventure of the youth story of uh, going steady and Ginan boys. Is <laughs> they they covered that song Junan Asai as a single, and it's the first song on the Hikari no Nakani Tatetene. And that song was originally by a, I think a '70s idol named Minami Saori. Yeah, her song is this like kind of like. Like a like a breezy like carpenter sounding song, really, really bubbly. She was like a teen idol, and it was covered again in the eighties, kind of like a synth pop style by by uh, Moritaka Chisato, who who was name dropped in Trash. And the way that the way they uh, take the song, they don't change any of the lyrics, but the instrumentation and the mood of it sounds really, um, really sad, really kind of desperate. And the reason I, I, I'm placing that kind of in the timeline later on is that it was recorded well after. I think it came out in 2009. It was, so that's four years after those Ginan Boys album, and it's kind of it's kind of their last statement on youth. Mm. It's kind of their last statement is like. Uh, fixating on someone we're like uh don't move don't move so i i need to hold you like that's kind of what he's singing in the song and it it transforms it from being like a a sweet teen anthem kind of like a bubbly like 50s style doo-wop teen anthem into like a kind of a like a pathetic 
plea for like, you know, trying to hold on. So I feel like there's the two paths you can kind of take of like how they finished up talking about it. Cause I feel like they really don't address these sorts of issues anymore anywhere else on Hikari no Nakani Tatetene or Nemi na Daisuke Dayo or any of those new singles. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they also did two versions of that on the single, right? Because there was the the regular instrument one, and then there was like the I think it was called something like the the version for that girl in the hospital or something like that, right? Like yeah, and you can you can kind of hear like the seaside, the, the ocean in the background. Yeah, and I don't know what the story is behind that. It's really intriguing because it's really kind of a raw thing you hear him playing. I think he's playing harmonica on it, right? I think so. I, I might be wrong about that. But anyway, like I said, I don't know what the story is. I don't know who the girl in the hospital is. But just that imagery when you just conjure up, you know, uh, some girl in a hospital room, you know, and he's making a song for her. It sort of like bridges that gap where, you know, when you're a kid or when you're a teenager, you feel like you're kind of immortal. You feel like you're kind of impervious to these, you know, to death and disease and stuff like that. And so it's sort of like this gateway where you're dealing with something that's very heavy, obviously, somebody who's a friend in the hospital, right? So I don't know, there's something kind of intriguing about that. I, I don't really have any kind of a fine point to put on it, but that is something that really always intrigued me about that song. Without having to change the lyrics, the lyrics could be vague enough to be, you know, I want to hold on to you, don't move from this mortal coil, mm. as opposed to like, don't move from this lovey-dovey moment we're having. Yeah, because that song really kind of talks about the fragile kind of nature of those relationships and stuff too, right? It talks about this very, very, I don't know, like um, the moment, like when they're talking about, you know, sitting on the beach and feeling the sun on them and stuff and, you know, don't let me go. I don't want to dissolve. I th I'm trying to, I, I don't have the lyrics in front of me, but it's something like that, like dissolving into the, into the sunlight or something like that. It, it almost reminds me a little bit of the Kakenukete session when they're talking about, you know, she's saying, I'm just a, a dream in your, I'm in your dream and I'm a bubble. If you touch me, I'm going to pop kind of thing. Like, yeah, it makes that idea of romantic love and um, especially like teenage romantic love is such a delicate thing where it could vanish at any moment, you know? And so it's this, this precious thing that you have to kind of hold in a very careful way. I'm just pulling up the, uh, June on Asai lyrics too. And uh, one thing I never noticed until just now is that he mentions the beach in the first lyric. There's nobody at the beach is the English translation. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. An empty beach, yeah. We didn't mention it on the beach episode, but the imagery fits really well. Like it could be a reason why he included it on the Hikari no Nakani Tatetene album. Even though it's a cover, you know, it's a bold choice to have that as your opening track paired up with the beach record. And you're kind of talking about beach as like the, the frontier from life to death or from beginning to end. 
and uh, you know this this song could kind of represent the the frontier being crossed from youth to adulthood. But let me ask you this, Bob, because you you'd know this better than I would. Are there any other songs that are covers that they put on their albums other than this? Not on their albums, no. This is probably the only one I can think of that not only did it make it as a single, but it made it to their album. So they obviously, it was a meaningful enough choice to be recorded at least three times for them, which is really interesting. So there, there must be some significance to that. I mean, maybe the song just particularly spoke to Minetta in a, in a way. I, I don't know. It, it seems c- completely in concert with, uh, you know, his whole thing, <laughs> you know? Well, I appreciate you guys exploring these kind of amorphous thoughts (laughs) on the band. (laughs) I feel like um, there's something really special about it. And, you know, we're all, I'm, I'm, I'm fucking bald. Like we're all old men today. Today, a 50 year old man thought I was the same age as him when I was talking to my accountant about doing taxes. He's like, how old are you? You look about the same age as me. So like, there's something special that this music can still speak to me as a, as a guy with a gray beard and a bald head as an old man. Yeah. I, I, it's, um, I'm kind of, I'm kind of happy that this is the music that stuck with me from my youth. Not kind of happy. I'm I'm like extremely happy that this that I crossed paths with this music and it's very special and I feel like maybe more maybe less than creating a cohesive idea more just like maybe this will be special to someone else too. Well, I think also this topic opens up that very very important dialogue which is something that I've been wrestling with for the better part of the last probably decade but that idea of um you know uncomfortable uncomfortable art and artists who have, you know, that you have to wrestle with because they're not, you know, they're difficult. Um, and so Mineta, I think in a lot of ways, and I don't mean this as a, any kind of, I don't mean to disrespect him or anything, but like, you know, he's not PC in some ways and he's, um, more of a Mac guy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's, <laughs> he's definitely more, more of a Mac guy. Yeah. I, I think that there's, um, you know, there, and I don't mean I don't I didn't mean to use the word PC in a derogatory way I, or you know I, I I mean it in in a sense that um, I personally wrestle with this idea of consuming art or supporting artists that are problematic and knowing what to do with it you know and so I mentioned Charles Bukowski earlier like that's somebody who I I personally am not interested in reading any more of because it is very misogynistic and I think it is kind of celebrating that kind of person in a sense. Whereas Mineta is somewhere is someone where I still feel I do want to consume his art and I want to kind of dig into it and stuff, um, despite the misogyny or you know things like that. So I appreciate you opening up that dialogue because it's something that I think about all the time. You know, if we're going to dismiss artists for being problematic and being assholes, I mean, like Picasso was an asshole who stole half of his art, you know. And like William Burroughs and people like that are, are definitely really hard to reconcile who they are with what they're with what they made. And so Mineta is somebody where his body of work and who he is as a person, it sits in this kind of interesting balance for me where I do enjoy it 
and I do have problems with it. And so it's the struggle with it is something that's really, really intriguing to me. I think there's a couple of, you, you'd probably know these guys, Adam, if not personally, you know their work. I think there's a couple comic artists who fit in kind of a similar space as, uh, as Mineta and specifically as Weezer. I bring Weezer up because um, I know Rivers Cuomo was a, a big fan of the artist Joe Matt. Mm-hmm. And uh, Joe Matt, I, this is burned into my brain. He had a comic where the first comic in the collection was how he fantasized about his girlfriend's friend. And then the second comic in the collection was how his girlfriend was mad at him for making the first comic. Yeah. And I was like, this is maybe the stupidest comic artist of all time, but also how many people are brave enough to kind of make that type of art as ridiculous and ugly as it is. And in the same vein as Joe Matt, one of his homies is that guy, Chester Brown. Right. And Chester Brown has that comic paying for it. That's all about how, you know, after getting out of his last relationship, he forsook relationships and he's like i'm just gonna start going to hookers and he details how he started finding hookers and eventually developed like an ongoing relationship with a hooker and yeah hooker's probably not the pc term uh sex worker yeah, sex worker yeah and i feel like um a lot of Minetta's music is less misanthropic and more just kind of like these are my fucked up thoughts whether or not they're the fucked up thoughts of his own or of his characters i feel like that's kind of the space that he lives in for sure. And those guys, so Joe Matt is, you know, he's part of that crew. He, he and Seth and uh, Chester Brown, they're all that, that you know, kind of that crew. Seth's stuff is still very, you know, it doesn't tread in that world at all. But I mean, Chester Brown, he's famous for like Yummy Fur, which was a very, very controversial comic back in in the day. But yeah, Chester Brown, I don't know if you read his follow-up. After he made Paying For It, he made a second uh, sequel to that called Mary Wept at the Foot of Jesus. And it's a very, very interesting reply to the criticism of his book because I don't know if you know this about him but he's a devout Christian I did not yeah and he, he's he's quite open about being a Christian and so he wrote that book Mary wept at the foot of Jesus as he, he documents all of these times where prostitution is mentioned in the Bible and how it's not necessarily condemned by Christ and what makes that book really interesting is that probably I would say almost a third of the book are these end notes just really, really like detailed endnotes where he almost does like an exegesis of the New Testament to show all these um, other theologians who have talked about the same same principles and stuff. And he has this, this is really not related at all to Ginnam boys, but it's, it's interesting, so I want to talk about it here. <laughs> He basically says, you know, the first real story in the Bible is the story of the Garden of Eden. And it you have to create this as a way of showing good and evil. Like you have to set the scene, essentially. But the second story, really, in Genesis is the story of Cain and Abel. And what's interesting about Cain and Abel is that the law at the time is that they are supposed to sacrifice their meat. At the altar, right? They're supposed to burn meat um, as a sacrifice to God. And Abel brings vegetables. So he's breaking the rules. He's breaking the, the Jewish law. And instead, I mean, Cain is bringing his first calf or whatever it was. I forget exactly from the passage. But God rewards Abel. And 
he considers Cain to be petty for for being upset about the fact that his brother isn't doing this, and that is what leads to you know him killing his brother. And so it's it's essentially this through line through the Bible that God gave us our intellect to challenge the laws that he put there for us. The whole reason that the laws are there and the whole reason that we have that intellect is to challenge it. And you see all these examples again and again of, of even Christ challenging the teachings and the common interpretations of law. And so he does that all through the, as a, this like really convoluted way of defending the fact that he is a lifelong John and has this <laughs> lifelong uh, relationship, like almost exclusive relationship with this sex worker. And so it's, it's, it's a really fascinating and weird take that I really like. Um, and I recommend, you know, and, and Joe Matt, he's, he's not personally my friend, but he's a very good friend of a very good friend of mine. And so uh, we, I talk about him all the time with, with friends, but um, yeah, he's he's exactly what you're talking about. He's just very the idea of complete honesty. Like you're talking about that um, that book where he you know has all those somewhat. I mean, I guess they're supposedly autobiographical comics, but the one that comes to my mind is one where he he has a shirt that I think his ex girlfriend bought for him, and he was like, oh, that reminds me so much of her, and so he like keeps it forever. And then one day when he is jerking off he needs something to clean up with and he's like well you can't keep on hold on to things forever and he uses that <laughs> prize t-shirt to like clean up <laughs> <laughs> oh that's that's rough and so yeah like so yeah i i agree there is a very similar kind of thing going on there where it's like i think chester brown and joe matt are very very honest and it's the honesty you know that honest depiction of themselves that is kind of vindicating how, how bad they are, right? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. That was a very long aside that has nothing to do with Gingnam Boys, so I apologize to all the people <laughs> who are listening to this to hear things about Gingnam Boys. Honestly, like, you know, if people have listened this far into the episode too, I'm glad you guys are just enjoying us uh, having a conversation. How often do you get to have these types of conversations with friends? I feel like when I do these episodes, I... I'm like also like writing an essay. Like I, I do more research into these songs than I ever do on anything else. And it's actually kind of fun. It's rewarding. It's cool. I've been really enjoying it. Thank you guys for doing it with me. For us. Thank you. I want to thank my listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out all of Mike's listeners for sticking through it, through this episode. <laughs> Sorry for making Mike's listeners put up to put up with uh, Bob and I interrupting Mike every once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> my listeners don't mind. It's okay. Yeah, I, I do. I do think. Going on to what you're talking about, though, Bob, there's something about our crew that we are all nerdy. And I mean nerdy in the sense that it's not, I mean it in the Chris Hardwick way, which is like, it's not what you like, but it's how you like it, how deeply you like it. And we're all very nerdy in that way that we will gladly give up our time to like dig deep into a subject and try to understand it really well. But I think that that we're in an era where like podcasts and stuff like that kind of um, make that it can be really appealing because you can dive deep into certain topics and be very, very nerdy about it and granular, granular. And, and um, I think that that granular was the word I was looking for. It didn't come out. I was trying not to say anything. <laughs> you can be a granule as well. Yeah. But yeah, not to like toot our own horn too much, but also that's kind of why I wanted to do this podcast is that, I feel like we're really into this niche 
stuff, this niche band, this niche scene. And it's like, if I was trying to discover them on the internet now, I feel like there's less information now than there was 15, 20 years ago. I feel like the internet has become so decentralized and everything is hidden on like, I can't find Discord chats on a Google search, you know? I can't I can't go back through 15-year-old 4chan threads or whatever to find people talking about music. That stuff has disappeared into the void. So I, I honestly love this critical mass of music podcasts coming out now. Someone just started a Weaker Thans one. I'm like, dude, I hope it's good. I hope this kicks ass because I would love to hear people delve into bands I like in the same way as we're doing on this. Yeah. What's the name of the Weaker Thans one? Sounds familiar. Cool. And so the, the second episode, he interviewed a guy from a ska band who covered uh, a Weaker Than song. So I was like, this is already a great tangent for them to be <laughs> yeah. on in their second episode. <laughs> yeah. Get right into this guy. All right, guys. Thanks so much for, for joining me for this conversation. And uh, tune in next week, y'all. Adios. Later. See ya. Hey, for real, thanks for listening to Dog People. Please follow us on Instagram and Twitter at dogpeople666. I'm posting a lot of dumb shit. And who the heck am I making it for if not for you guys? Thanks to everyone who's been messaging and commenting. We got some real cool episodes coming up in the next couple weeks. So keep tuning in. Peace. Peace.